You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Estimirova. Svetlana's phone buzzed as always. When she picked up, a man's voice began to threaten her, telling, we've been given orders to deal with feminists. This was not the first time she'd been threatened. Svetlana is a journalist from Dagestan who helps to run Daptar, a women's online portal that writes about topics that are highly contentious and taboo in the North Caucasus. Domestic violence, honor killings, early marriages, divorce, feminism, and women's place in society. It's not all doom and gloom, though. On the website, you'll find plenty of empowering stories on women from Caucasus who are entrepreneurs, academics, athletes, and scientists, showing by example that if given an opportunity, girls can be whatever they want to be. Daptar covers all the republics of the region, particularly Dagestan, Chechnya, and Ingushetia. These are all conservative Muslim republics with patriarchal social structure. Each is plagued by a number of problems, corruption, inequality, bad governance, territorial disputes, and Islamist radicalization, just to name a few. Chechnya, ruled by dictator Ramzan Kadyrov, is, is certainly the most repressive. You'll get the idea if you listen to one of my previous podcasts titled The Humiliation of Salman Tsipsurkaev. But in this sea of complicated issues and challenges, the topic of women's rights often gets sidelined or ignored altogether. In places where women are, on the whole, subordinate to men, their fathers, brothers, and husbands, their problems are expected to be solved internally. Family honor and reputation is crucial in places like Dagestan. The phrase that I seem to come across time and time again is there's no need to air one's dirty laundry. But what about the situations in which women are not protected by their families, but instead the threat comes from within? What if your husband beats and tortures you, but your parents insist that you stay and don't ruin your marriage? What about the rare but shocking cases of female genital mutilation that are performed on girls as young as eight years old? What about women whose private information and photos are posted on social media by their blackmailers? Daptar doesn't shy away from these subjects, and the way they are discussed so openly helps many women realize that they're not alone and their experiences matter. But, unfortunately, the uncomfortable truth results in backlash, with journalists and activists branded as dirty feminists, insulted, harassed, and threatened. So, why does discussing the women's question, in quotation marks, cause such a stir? As a Chechen and as a feminist, I could give my own take, but I thought it would be best to ask an expert a representative of a civil society group based in Ingushetia, Janet Alhigova. I'll let her introduce herself. I worked in the civil society sector in the North Caucasus for a couple of decades, and now my work is more about building partnerships and networks across the region and building capacity of civil society groups. Were you always interested um, in women's rights? Uh, were you always kind of aware 
that it's tough to be a woman um, where we're from? Or do you think you came to this realization a bit later on? You will face it if you are raised in such a region as North Caucasus, definitely. And but how I became interested in women's rights, um, I I've seen a lot of human rights violations and and and, and a lot of work with uh, human rights in, while I have been working here, and I could clearly see and distinguish that women are the only group that is totally neglected when their rights are violated. And human rights simply, you know, just run out when it comes to women. So when you see injustice, you just engage, I guess. So I started <laughs> yeah. agenda, yeah. Of course. The topic of women's rights and feminism and speaking out against violence and, and inequality is something that unites women from all over the world, I think. And unfortunately, the pattern that we see with women who speak out against this, whether it's in... Um, Bolivia or uh, Ingushetia, Dagestan or or the UK is that those women faced uh, face a lot of vile online, a lot of threats, and that's something that un- unfortunately they have in common. And whenever there a story comes out uh, in the North Caucasus, a big story about uh, forced marriage, um, female female genital mutilation, or domestic violence, it causes a massive backlash against it and well the light the loudest voices belong to men and these kind of articles are followed by threats to authors who produce them and why is it in particular that men in the north caucasus are so threatened not just by feminists by a but by a simple discussion of basic women's rights well, yeah, but in order to understand the context, you know, we need a tiny bit of pre-context, I guess. You know, violations of human rights have been an acute problem in the region for many years. And people have gone through massive violent experiences in the past and a long period of brutal and often indiscriminate suppression of the so-called insurgency in the recent decades, with lots and lots of people killed. So in this human rights context, you know, women's rights have hardly been noticed or considered. In local um, human rights discourse, women's rights are either diligently avoided or denied, even by the prominent human rights defenders. So the situation is like, you see how terrible the situation is. How can we just talk about women's rights? But why so much resistance? I think there are a few interconnected things and processes that are not linear. First, of course, the community is very patriarchal. So the current power relations are hugely asymmetrical, which of course brings strong resistance to any discussion of women's rights. Because of course the discussion means there's a possibility of of challenging the existing power dynamics. And another thing that I see is that recent decades have been marked by quite obvious rays of fundamentalist agenda. I wouldn't like though to otherize people by this term, definitely, especially because this term has widely been used to dehumanize and target particular communities, especially in the context of the so-called global war on terror. I'd like to use this term in a in a critical way, let's say. So there's no single definition, but what we see as fundamentalism through the um, from the perspective of human rights is we talk about being absolutist, intolerant, and coercive, with no critical questioning or room for challenge or debate, following literal readings of texts and the will of religious authorities. And, of course, anti-women's rights and patriarchal. 
You know, the control of women's bodies is a key defining characteristic of fundamentalisms. And the pressure put on women's rights is the first, uh, it's, it's actually the first warning sign that fundamentalisms are on the rise or taking hold in a significant way, which we see in Russia now, not only in the North Caucasus. And what this means for women and women's rights is limiting health rights and reduced reproductive rights, less autonomy in general, uh, increased violence against women, of course, um, less rights for women in the public sphere. This is what we see everywhere in the North Caucasus, especially when we talk about the eastern part of the North Caucasus, Chechnya, Ingushetia, and Dagestan, where women are being pushed out of the public sphere. So in general, it's about perpetuating and reinforcing patriarchy. And another defining feature of this fundamentalism is adherence to a pure tradition. You know, tradition is what has widely been in on, on public discourse in the region in the recent decades. So it's about going back to pure traditions. So religious fundamentalisms, in this sense, in in terms of like traditionalism, uh, works hand in hand with the cultural fundamentalism. And they both talk about pure tradition, authenticity, and they are very much traditional. And you would think that, um, and, and even new traditionally, you know, like when you look at the first sight, you could you could think that um, they're trying to revive traditions to make the society uh, adapt to the modern world and effectively mm. function in it. But in fact you see that the so-called reviving is only about the parts that reinforce patriarchy. So this is what makes, um, uh, this is another thing that makes uh, people intolerant towards uh, any kind of, uh, uh, any discussion of women's rights, I would say. And and the last thing, I personally also think that the presence of de facto three legal systems in the, in the same place also have a big influence on how the women's rights are perceived here because we have religious law, customary law and the Russian actual law in force all present in the same place and combined with the absence of rule of law that make women extremely vulnerable because those who have less power get the obligations of all three systems, you know, but not the rights and it makes this balance in any power relations become bigger. And we see this in gender relations. So in this context, there's little to no space for discussion of women's rights, as you see. Because these all three systems, they make women even more vulnerable. Because men just can, can use all the three systems using only the rights from these three systems, but not the obligations. Over the past few years, we've seen a rise of online spaces for women from the Caucasus created by Caucasian women, um, which is very important. And one of the most prominent examples is Daptar, a women's online outlet that touches upon a lot of so-called controversial topics, but also multiple social media channels, um, for example, Telegram channels, in which women uh, decide what topics they want to discuss. And we often see this very frank and sincere outpouring of of frustration and sadness and anger, uh, something that's often denied to them in their everyday life. They find these safe spaces where they can sort of be themselves and share their frustrations. Do you think that they make a difference? And how popular are they with women? Well, Daptar is great 
there are some really great platforms and Doptar is definitely one of them. It's it's like a fresh era for women, you know, whose experiences have so much been neglected for a long time. And they started with Dagestan women and then Daptar went further and now writes about women from other regions in the North Caucasus. There are also some very good channels like Mado from Ingushetia. Mm-hmm. Um, they're writing about the violence against women and raise some very sensitive and controversial issues. And you said uh, a, a good thing. You said about this, um, um, you know, letting the anger out. Without this, you cannot even even do anything. You cannot work on on any change if you don't let this, um, you know, if you don't let your anger out after being so much oppressed. And, and this is what I more see in the mother channel, a lot of um, uh, anger of women going out. and but, but they, of course, write about different things. Many, I said, controversial and about uh, various types of violence against women, women's experiences also. I see that they are popular with women who thought that they are alone in their experience. And, you know, suddenly they see... There are so many other women like them who suffer injustice and want to share their experiences. And this gives women some strength, a little bit of more confidence. I, I, I'm totally sure that uh, they make difference. I, I'm, I'm sure of that. And from what I see, they are popular with women. I guess it's a difficult question, but was there any story in particular that happened to a woman that you know of that angered you and shocked you could could you tell me more about it oh yes uh of course we did the recent case with madina umayeva from chechnya which was this year and uh, the one of the most prominent cases of um, mariam aliva from ingushetia this case you know is just a quintessence of everything that can happen in the worst scenarios to, to a woman uh, the woman, um, uh, the mother, um, she had a few kids and she was kidnapped when she was a child. It was a bright kidnapping uh, by a man. He was much older, by uh, uh, much older, and he also was married. Uh, well, and she was forced to become his wife. And there was a lot of uh, violence against this woman. She she was beaten many times and even tortured. Uh, she was tortured, actually. And she tried to run away once and she was returned home. But after that, she just disappeared. And um, there are some... Um, so there is some evidence that she could, could have been killed by her husband. Uh, however, the local... Um, law enforcement they are um you know hindering the investigation of the of this uh, crime and uh her sister he was insisting on um on uh investigation and he was insisting on uh, things being done according to to laws because uh, the, the the man her, her husband actually is a very influential man so she was kidnapped by his relatives and um, threatened uh, she and her husband and she had to leave the place so w- we see what i can say about this case that even the um ex- the, the expertise that is um is supposed to be done by the investigation and by the law enforcement was not even was it still has not been done 
and this is what we mm -hmm. see from from the local structures and this is what we see how women can be uh, protected by the law it's a terrible story absolutely terrible Medina Maeva's story that Janet mentioned in our conversation is the one that stayed with me. It's a gruesome illustration of violence and the lack of protection that some women face in the region while their torturers walk with impunity. When she was only 16, Medina was married to a 20-year-old who had mental health issues. That didn't stop him from getting a job at the special police force training camp headed by Ramzan Kadyrov's cousin. By the time she was 23, Medina had three kids, including a toddler. All these years, she was beaten by her husband, but whenever she attempted to run away to her parents, they would tell her to go back. Chechen and English women often get trapped in abusive marriages because, according to the custom, in case of divorce, children stay with their father. So Medina also stayed and suffered, until the day she suffered no more. In June of this year, as a mother of three, she received a small pandemic stimulus from the government. The young woman gave most of the sum to her mother-in-law and, with the rest, bought a TV and children's clothes. That sent Medina's husband into a fit of rage, and he severely beat her. Several hours later, the woman was dead. She was buried in secret in the middle of the night, contrary to Chechen custom. Here I'm quoting journalist Elena Milashina. All the laws, Russian law, Sharia law, and even Chechen adats were on Medina's side, even after her death. And none of them worked in today's Chechnya. In the end, her murderer wasn't prosecuted, and the whole story was swept under the carpet. But it wasn't forgotten. Violence against women is not unique to the North Caucasus. Sadly, it's a recurring problem across the world, what makes it difficult to address these issues is the hostility journalists and activists face when they try and raise these subjects. The state mechanisms designed to protect victims often clash with tradition or simply fail in their own right. So, to relieve their frustrations and find comfort in sisterhood. Over the past few years, a number of feminist social media accounts have sprung up in which women talk frankly about what bothers them and share their stories and the stories of others. One of them is called What I'd Like to Say, Mado. Mado is a short nickname for name for a name, Medina. I've mentioned previously how in the Caucasus, Telegram channels are a vital source of information, and Mado is one of the popular ones. It's run by several activists from Ingushetia anonymously, and needless to say, receives countless abuse. Those who suspect of having links with us, and even those we don't know, receive direct threats, one of the admins told me. Stylistically, their posts reminded me of diary entries, helping to create an intimate and trusting atmosphere between writers and their readers. Similarly to Daptar, it's a platform where women openly discuss what's important, inequality between sexes, violence against women, constraining societal norms. When I ask one of the admins how they think the channel helps women, they replied, at least it helps to deal with anger and frustration that builds, in, that builds up inside. Our posts can be too emotional and raw, but one of our goals is, is to provide a mental relief. 
each of us knows this daily silent rage. The platform helps the writers to express themselves and lets the readers know that their pain is felt and shared. Being a kind of progressive Caucasian woman, whether you're from Chechnya or from Ingushetia, it's sometimes difficult to navigate these feelings of love towards your country and towards your people and hatred and of certain traditions that or, or certain attitudes that really bring women down. Before, uh, before we spoke, I actually had a conversation with some of the admins from the Telegram channel, Mado. Well, mm-hmm. obviously, it's, it's all very confidential and very anonymous. So I don't know who I was speaking to. I was speaking with a bot because safety is a number one priority for them. That's something that struck me that these women are doing such a tremendous job, male women and perhaps men, I, I can imagine it's mostly women, and they have to fear for their lives, and not only for their lives, but for their reputation and the reputation of their entire clan. And so I guess my question is, it's a, it's a bit tricky, and it's something that I get asked a lot as a Chechen who lives in Europe, who lives abroad, is how can we help? What can we do from here? What do you think can be done to ensure the safety of those journalists and activists and bloggers who uncover taboo topics in the North Caucasus? And what resources do you think they need? I see, yes, that the writers, the activists have to work anonymously. Yeah, like Model Channel. And that clearly shows how much threat there is for women for speaking out. Well, I think that some platforms... um, spaces which bring the women's rights activists together and let them see the their peer support is one thing uh, so that they don't feel alone and that they don't feel disconnected you know this um, this feeling of of being disconnected is is really uh, it's it, it affects negatively and another thing is i guess Funds. If the activist group does not have a state registration as an NGO, in mm. Russia, and, yeah, and you understand that those who write about controversial things won't go for registration, they cannot claim even the little financial support that is available for them in the region. So I would say maybe some flexible support schemes or technical support that they otherwise mm-hmm. cannot afford, like like digital security for example, and and I guess um, the one more thing would be talking about uh, about these groups and these activists, even if they are anonymous, letting people see that you know you know you cannot just come and attack them because a lot of people will notice it. Yeah, mm. I think just talking about them and writing about them would also help. Despite her best wishes, Svetlana had to temporarily leave Dagestan and she hasn't come back yet. The journalists reported threats to the police but never heard anything back from them. But make no mistake, she carries on her work. You may have noticed that in this podcast I spoke about both activism and journalism. In the North Caucasus, both are interwoven. Once you hear a heartbreaking story, your instinct is to try and help. Svetlana helped to set up a woman's shelter called Mariam, after Mariam Aliyeva, who was mentioned here previously, and she isn't planning on giving up. 
When I get scared, I become more angry and stubborn. It's not a good idea to try and influence me through fear, she told me. When I ask the admins of the Mado Telegram channel about what motivates them to go on, they replied, We always support each other. We share our stories and our worries. You can always have support in our community. Besides, we receive lots of lovely messages. Our victories and losses motivate us equally, but of course, it has an impact on our mental health, just like at war. Even if you come home in one piece, you'll have nightmares and insomnia.